The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Normally we preach from the ESV 
just have to make a little bit of allowance in a couple of verses there for um, maybe some slight textual differences there. I'm sure it won't alter the, uh, the, the, the overall flavour of the message at all. Why don't we just pause at this moment just for a quick word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your, your word which comes to us sometimes, Lord, uh, like honey from a honeycomb. It's soothing, it's sweet, it's encouraging, but other times, Lord, it comes like a sledgehammer or like a, uh, like a two-edged sword and cuts deep into our hearts and lives. And Father, we just pray this morning as we look at this passage that maybe both those aspects of your work will come through, that we'll see something Lord, of the awfulness of sin and the exposure of that sin that this passage brings, but also, Lord, the comfort and soothing of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm very encouraged as I uh, look at this passage here this morning to think that uh, you here at North Pine have been tackling the book of Hosea. Uh, firstly, because it's very easy for us to um, to overlook the um, those nine, sorry, those twelve little minor prophets that come at the end of the Old Testament, tucked away there. They're only minor, by the way, by the fact that they're shorter. They're smaller books. They're not minor in the sense that they're less important than the uh, the major prophets. Uh, the other reason why I'm glad that you're getting Hosea is because I think that the passage, particularly that we're looking at today. Um, it's, a, it's a deeply personal passage, and it and it it shows us a side of God's personality that uh, sometimes we miss when we read the other parts of the Bible. Sometimes, when we think about God, we think of Him as being like a uh, um, a strict disciplinarian, maybe a a, a strict school teacher type of person. And what we have the idea, you know, that this God is waiting, ready for us to step out of line so that he can bring down some form of punishment upon us or pull us back into line. And I guess you could say there are aspects of the character of God where he does do that. And he does come down more firmly upon us and pull us into line. But there's another aspect of God which... Um, which shows us a softer side to him. Um, sometimes people think of God as being like a, um, a, a doting grandfather type of person. And, uh, you know, this, this grandfather so loves his, his grandchildren that um, he lets them get away with anything. He doesn't seem to get too upset about anything. And, and, and some people carry with them this idea that God is kind of always like that. Um, the problem that we have trying to trying to build a, a composite picture of what God is like is that, is that we don't have the right categories to be able to, to be able to sort of fit God into. We tend to, to look at God with our, with our human lenses and, um, and yet they're never completely adequate to, um, to, to reveal to us the, 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 the multi-factorial kind of nature of the, the character of God. Sometimes we try to kind of compare God with maybe a very, very, very good person and then add a little bit more onto that and sort of say, well, that's what God is like. But even that, it's, um, it's inadequate. Um, it's never going to enable us to fully 
understand, comprehend all that God is, there's always going to be this gap between our sort of human attempt to understand God and to, and to, and to understand fully what God is like. Well, in Hosea chapter 11, we're seeing a side of God which, as I said before, doesn't often come through in other parts of the Bible. We see an emotional side of God that, um, that is really quite striking because you know, we don't come across this all that often. God is describing here in these verses his own feelings, his feelings for the people of Israel. He talks about his love for them in very graphic, very human terms. And, and we get this, this glimpse into the heart of God in these verses here, which is extremely moving. And um, as we read these verses here, and we're thinking particularly about the relationship between God and the children of Israel, um, we can't help thinking about the relationship that we have with God. Let's set the scene as we look at these verses in chapter 11. The first ten chapters in the book of Hosea, um, God has been pleading with the people of the northern kingdom of Israel to turn back to him. Over and over again, these people, they, they had disobeyed God. They had rejected God. And um, they'd gone off worshipping other gods, the gods of the Bible. Um, just as Hosea's own wife had left him and become a prostitute, Israel had done the same thing with God. How's God, God going to react in the face of all this blatant rebellion that's going on? Well, in these verses, Eleven here, we find that out. And the first seven verses describe this very sad state of the relationship that existed between God and his people. I've called these seven verses the broken relationship. Let's read verses one to seven again. And I'm reading from the Bible. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them in by the arm, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the crib, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them, because they refuse to return? A sword will flash in their city. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high. I will by no means exalt them. If you're a parent, I'm sure you'll be able to identify with what God is saying here through the prophet Hosea. What he's saying is, is that Israel is like my child. I, I was the one who called them out of Egypt. Remember, they had spent 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And the day came when God sent Moses and he called his people out of Egypt. That was six or seven hundred years before the destruction written by Hosea. God was the one who had gently cared for them during their years in the wilderness. 
He's the one who had settled them in the promised land. He's the one who had saved them from extinction over and over again in their battles against the Philistines and other surrounding nations. And God describes himself as, as being like, like, like a loving father who is there teaching his toddler to walk. He's picking him up when he, when he trips over. He puts band-aids on him when he, gets, when he grazes his knees to help the healing. He lifts them up. He people up and he gives them a cuddle and he gives them a kiss when they're feeling sad. That's just a picture that is being painted for us here by God as he describes his relationship with the people of Israel. These are really beautiful, very human images that God is using here to describe the way that he feels about Israel. But what's their response? How do they respond to this love that God is pouring out upon them? Well, the more they were called, the more they were away from the rest of the story of God's church. How devastating for a parent to be treated like that. And yet that's what Israel did to God. They, they rejected all the love that was poured out upon them. They turned their back on God. They sacrificed the idols of the Baal, the gods of pain, the gods of wood and stone. That's all they were, lumps of wood and stone. But here they were bowing down to these idols rather than worshiping the God who had, had so tenderly loved them. Verse 7 puts it like this, My people were determined to turn from me. It's as though these people wanted to go back to Egypt, go back to the slavery that their loving God had delivered them from. There are lots of parables in these images here. Uh, lots of parallels to the parable of the prodigal son, where that, that the younger son deliberately turned his back on the love of his father and went away and wasted his life in this living. Despite all the love and all the kindness that his father had showered upon him, he chose to walk away. And I, I suspect that there are some parents who are watching this this morning who know from first-hand experience the pain that is involved in being rejected by a rebellious child. And there's almost a sort of sense of helplessness in these verses here as God watches on while his children make these choices, which he knows are going to inevitably end in disaster for them. Look at verses 5 and 6 there. Assyria will rule over them. A sword will flash in their cities. Their false prophets will be devoured. Their plans will come to an end. Despite all the warnings that Hosea himself had given and the warnings of the other prophets around that time in history there, the Israelites are determined to turn from them. You can't, you can't read these verses and not feel something of God's sadness at the brokenness of the relationship that he had with these his chosen people. But what about our relationship with God? How does God feel about the way that we see him? Do we willfully turn away from him and go off after the idols of this world? There are many Christians, sadly, who I don't think really realize just how much God 
understanding you have precious to God, it's not just that you make a huge difference to the way that we live. I suspect you'd be far less inclined to want to live selfish lives because you would just say, Oh, God loves us. I suspect that we would be far less inclined to run off chasing after the idols of this world if we realize how much God loves us. It's so easy for us if we're not careful as Christians to go chasing after these idols, the material symbols of success. The recognition and the praise of other people. The comforts and pleasures of life that can so easily lead us astray. We can spend our time exalting ourselves, worrying about how we look and what we're wearing, and crafting an image of ourselves that others are going to notice. We're making an idol in the sense of ourselves. Pure narcissism. We trust ourselves or our wealth or our health. Well, the systems of this world rather than God, we place ourselves in the place of God into the idolatry. And we can so easily do damage to our relationship with God if we're not careful. Verse 7 says, They call me God, most high. But God wasn't impressed with that receptivity. They can talk the talk. But their life wasn't there enough that God was in this place. In their hearts, they were being unfaithful to God. And sometimes in life, we like that with us. We can, we can talk the talk. We can use the right lingo. But see, God sees our hearts. And He knows what's going on at the deeper level. And He knows where there's spiritual idolatry in the heart. So that was picture that was given here in these first seven verses of the, of the broken the broken state of the relationship between God and the people of Israel. But how does God then respond? And we see this tendency in the next couple of verses. And here we see God's broken heart. Verses eight and nine. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Agnes? How can I make you like Deborah? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against your sin. When we read the word Ephraim here, we'll understand that Ephraim, which was one of the tribes the Northern Kingdom, one of the biggest tribes of the Northern Kingdom, is often used as a um, as a way of describing that, that whole Northern Kingdom. And so uh, we, we just substitute the Northern Kingdom of Israel at this time, which is the word Ephraim. Well, how would you react if your child, maybe a rebellious teenager, had treated you like Israel treated God? I, I think. It would have been perfectly understandable if God had wiped them out or if God had just simply given up and sort of said, well, if you don't want to live with me, well, do it your own way, but you have to then suffer the consequences that are going to come from those selfish, sinful choices. That's what you would maybe expect God to do, but he doesn't. 
And we see in these two verses here just how intensely personal God's love is for these, uh, these Israelites. And you can almost feel the, the ache in his heart when you read them. How can I give you up? He says. How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like Admar and Zeboyim? Admar and Zeboyim were, were two of the cities um, around Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. They were completely wiped off the planet. All my compassion is aroused, he says to them. And these words here are full of emotion. And you can sense something of the internal conflict going on in the heart of God as he tries to, tries to work out how to react to the way that he's been treated by the, uh, by the Israelites. In many ways, this response by God is, is quite unexpected. Many times in the past, God had actually pronounced judgment on Israel and he had carried out those judgments. The people of Israel weren't immune from God's stern punishment when they disobeyed him. Not at all. But here, in these verses here, it's almost as though there's this battle going on inside God's heart. On the one hand, he's angry about their sin. But then on the other hand, he's saying, but, but my love for them is undiminished. And so here I am, I'm, I'm caught between, on the one hand, wanting to punish them because of their disobedience and rejection of me. But on the other hand, I, I, I just can't let go of them. They're mine. They're precious to me. I've called them. And so we see this, this tension between the two. And then comes verse 9. I will not carry out my fierce anger nor will I devastate each one of them, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. And we see this, this, this extraordinary glimpse into the heart of God. Yes, a day would come when the northern kingdom of Israel would be punished for their sin. And in 722 BC, not long after this prophecy from Hosea, the Assyrians did come down and attack the northern king of Israel and, and they were taken off into captivity. But God also promised that he would not destroy them completely like he did to Admar and Zeboim. How do we make sense of God's justice on the one hand and his mercy in situations like this? Look, from a purely human point of view, most of us probably lean on the side of cold hard justice. Throw the book at God. Give them everything that they deserve. They have over and over and over again rejected you. Give it to them. And it's sort of it's that deep inner sense of justice that we're all kind of born with would sometimes say that. And most of us are pretty good at calling for justice when it doesn't involve us personally, I've noticed, because I look into my own heart. But as verse 9 tells us here, God gives his reason for holding back on his judgment. What's his reason? He says, For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. 
the Holy One. He's a God of both justice and mercy. And He always balances these two aspects of His divine nature perfectly. Can I say that again? The Holy One is a God of both justice and mercy. And He always balances these two aspects of His divine nature perfectly. I know a dear baby who is now in her late 70s and she has a son who is in his late 40s. She had him as a single mother and raised him with about as much love as any human mother possibly could. When that boy was still quite young, he became a Christian and so she started sending him to Sunday school and a youth group. Um, and he grew up surrounded by Christian peers. Um, during his teenage years and beyond, he started to lose his way and he became a gambling addict, which then led him to commit crimes to support his habits and uh, also several stints in prison. He was a classic prodigal, I guess you would say. That man has caused so much heartache and grief to his mother over years and years and years. And on many occasions when I've had an opportunity to talk to that lady, and um, I have, yes, I've counselled her at uh, times to show tougher love in her dealings with him. And I know that she oscillates at times between her tears and her anger as she tries to make their relationship work. But you know what? Her love for that son of hers never, never wanes. It's extraordinary. After all that she suffered, all the emotional and the financial pain that she's been through, all the torment that she's had to experience, she has never, ever given up on that prodigal boy of hers. Now I know that um, that lady is not God and we have to be very careful about using human human analogies when we're referring to God. But there's um, something about that lady's love for her son that speaks to me greatly about God. You see, God never gives up on those that he has called. This, this is how God described himself to Moses in Exodus 34 when he was on Mount Sinai um, receiving the Ten Commandments. This is, this is God's, if you like, definition of himself. Um, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, this is the name that he gave, himself to Moses, the Lord of Lords, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Again, what an amazing picture of the character of God here. What's he like? Well, 
He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He forgives wickedness, rebellions, and sins. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Again, see this balance between God's love on the one hand, his mercy on the one hand, and his justice on the other. Well, how, how can all this be understood? Well, there's one more trick in this passage of Sam. It's this beautiful, moving, moving love story that comes to us. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Pray that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. And I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Here we see that the, the unexpected homecoming that is prophesied by Hosea at the end of this chapter. What God is doing here is he's prophesying that a day is coming when he's going to roar like a lion and call his unfaithful people back home. And when he does that, they're going to come back home to the land of Israel from all the places where they have been scattered because of their sinful rejection of God. God doesn't abandon them forever. The day is going to come when he's going to bring them back home and they will come trembling. Why will they be trembling? They'll be trembling because they know that they don't deserve this kind offer from God. It's a bit like the, the prodigal son coming home. He knew that he was undeserving of his father's love. He said, maybe Dad will give me a job as a servant. When we read the, um, the Old Testament prophecies, it's sometimes very difficult to know exactly what stage of history is being referred to. And sometimes there's a, a double fulfillment or even a triple fulfillment of these prophecies. I think that on one level, the reference in verses 10 and 11 is to the is to the return of the Jewish exiles from their exile in Babylon, which happened about 200 years later. And what God is saying through the prophet Hosea is the day is coming. Well, I'm going to bring the people of Israel back and settle them back in their, in their, their homeland again. But I very strongly suspect that uh, these verses are also referring to another calling home, which is going to take place after the day of Pentecost when we see the, 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 the apostles standing in front of this one, calling people back to God. It's interesting in uh, Revelation chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, and you can look it up later if you like, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and so, in a sense, what you could say is that when Jesus came, that, uh, that he roared like a lion, metaphorically speaking, for people to come back to God. This is the call of the gospel. And people from every corner of the globe are hearing that call even still today and they're coming from the east and the west and the, the south and the north. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnic group and every culture, they're all coming because they're all hearing the call, the roar of the lion. People are 
hearing the gospel call, a repenting of their sin, they're putting their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. The wonderful thing is, is that that line that's referred to in uh, verse 10 is still roaring today. As God calls people back to Himself, people He loves so dearly and so tenderly. God is even at work here today. In the lounge room of Brisbane, as people sit in front of their, 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 their television and computer screens today, downloading this message, and, and, and they also are hearing the roar of the lion. God challenges people and calls people to put their trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them and to bring them back home. Hosea wouldn't have known when he, when he made these prophecies how God was actually going to sort out the details of this prophecy in chapter 11. But we're, we're in a very privileged and a very fortunate position ourselves now because we can read these Old Testament prophecies through New Testament lenses. We're looking back and we can see the way that that prophecy today has been fulfilled. In his incredible love for his people, God actually made a way for his justice and his mercy to come together. How did he do that? Well, he put the punishment of guilty sinners onto Jesus through his death on the cross. Because of that, God is now able to offer mercy and grace to undeserving sinners. He doesn't ignore sin. The cross tells us that absolutely. But what he does is that he trumps sin with grace. And that's the beauty of the gospel message. What an amazing God. What an incredible love. This is not just Israel's history. This, this is the story of the human race. We have a microcosm of it expressed in, in uh, Hosea chapter 11. But really, what is, being, what is being pictured and played out here is a representation of, uh, of the whole human race. And more than that, it's your story and it's my story. We're the 21st version, 20, sorry, 21st century version, if you like, of Israel. We're the, the ungrateful prodigals who rebel against God. By our very nature, we're selfish and we're sinful people. And we deserve God's judgment. But you know what? God comes and says, How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not a man. And God is calling every one of us home to himself today, church. The lion's roar is still roaring out. And I want to just ask this morning as we, as we conclude, have you responded to that call? You know, God has done everything that is necessary to make this possible for us to be able to come home to him. He sent Jesus to die in our place upon the cross to, to carry the penalty for our sin, to pay it in full. So if we put our trust in Jesus, repent of our sin and turn to Him, He promises to take that sin away, to overwhelm us 
with its perfection and its human love. But when it comes, that time will be the longest. And I was calling you by name today, and it's saying, Come. You come. You come to me. You're my child. I love you. You come to me. If you're not a Christian, maybe today might be your very best opportunity to accept that invitation and to come. It may well be that you are a Christian, but you've been drifting away. And I think today the message that comes through from Hosea 11 is that God is calling us to come back to Him. Come back where you belong. Come trembling. When we do that, God won't turn us away. God's love is deep, it's personal, it's kind, it's compassionate. And He's inviting us today to turn and come back. So I just say this morning as we finish, please, please, please check your heart. Are you right with God? Are you right with Him? Because today, is an opportunity, a special opportunity. You say, Lord, I see so much of myself in this story of life. But I also see so much of you. And I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please accept me as your child. Friends, this is God's word for today. May God bless it to us. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for the reminder today of the immensity and the tenderness of your love for us. Lord, Lord, we're just so undeserving. You know our hearts. We know our hearts. We see the sin that, that, that continually pushes us away from you. But Lord, you refuse to let us go. And Lord, this morning as we contemplate that, we just want to say thank you. Please, Lord, keep us near you. Keep us near the cross where we really belong. Keep us, Lord, from seeking after the idols of this world. And we just pray, Lord, that, uh, that uh, we might live our lives in such a way that we bear a true and faithful and winsome testimony to the power of your saving love in our lives, Jesus. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as we close this morning, and by way of benediction, let me read these verses from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And these are a prayer that uh, Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.